Hello, everyone. My name is Peter Dre, and I welcome you to this next episode of the PwC Tax Byte podcast series. A lot of things happened today, a lot of publication of the European Commission. So we should have a discussion on that. And I'm very happy that I could find in this year-end period two experts to have this discussion with me. First of all, Isabel Verlinden. Isabel is PwC's corporate tax strategy partner and Jean-Philippe van West. Jean-Philippe is well known in this podcast series, of course, and he is our European law expert. So yeah, happy that you're all here today, Isabel and Jean-Philippe. Um, what a productive year for the European Commission, was it? Um, we saw the DAC 7 being adopted. We saw plans for business taxation in the 21st century. That was in May uh, of this year. We have seen the Green Deal, the Fit for 55 package, and in the meantime, also the OECD was continuing its work. And, and we saw uh, earlier this week, last Monday, uh, we saw the publication of the, the proposal for Pillar 2 for the global minimum taxation. And only two days later, also the European Commission came with a package full of documents today. And that's what I want to talk with you about today, because a number of important uh, documents were published. Uh, I think, Jean-Philippe, can you, can you enlighten us uh, on what was published today? Yes, yes, of course, Peter. And there were uh, at least four uh, important documents uh, published today uh, and as well uh, yesterday. Uh, the first one, as you mentioned, uh, the Pillar 2 uh, document, the, the draft directive that should implement Pillar 2 uh, in the EU. As well, we have an uh, we have a draft directive for uh, ATA called ATA Tree on uh, on shell uh, entities. Next to that, we have uh, new EU state aid guidelines that were uh, published uh, that should uh, set out the framework under which EU member states can provide uh, state aid uh, to support a green, to, uh, transitions towards uh, a green economy and implement the EU Green Deal. And uh, next to that, we have as well proposals uh, for an EU budget. So uh, lots of things uh, still published uh, this week, I would say. Yeah, uh, wow, what a package. And of course, these podcasts are not uh, a full day podcast, so we will need to focus a little bit uh, in, in this one. And I propose that we, uh, well, we start perhaps with the publication of uh, on the Pillar 2 proposal, because that's, of course, a very important development for many of uh, the listeners here. Um, so the European Commission published a draft directive, uh, of course, um, is it is it completely in line with the OECD or are there important differences, Jean-Philippe? Perhaps that's as a starting point. Yes, indeed, that's in the, that's a good starting point. Eh? And well, the Commission is clear. Eh? It says it explains that it is important to stay as close as possible to the OECD model rules. However, um, there are at least uh, three important deviations. And as well, they partly have to do deal with um, EU particularities of EU law, such as the fundamental freedoms, but as well with keeping the European the, the sovereignty of EU member states. And the first important uh, deviation is that where the, the, the OSD model rules apply to multinationals that are act actively cross-border. So there is a need for a cross-border uh, element entities in separate in separate countries well under the to avoid uh, violation of the fundamental freedoms and discrimination then within the eu the directive will also or provides that the the glow uh, the rules should also apply to strictly domestic uh, situations so uh, so a big a large company that only acts domestically so that is one uh, important difference a second difference uh, concerns 
the, the application of the income inclusion rule, yeah, which is as yes, to, on the, so we have to collect the top of tax, we have the income inclusion rule under tax payment rule. Well, normally the income inclusion rule under the OSD model rules will in principle only apply as well cross-border. So only with entities, entities, low tax entities situated in other countries. Well, similar as the previous uh, deviation, to avoid discrimination and, uh, and and not infringement of the EU fundamental freedoms, as well, the income inclusion rule will apply in strictly domestic uh, situations. So as well to domestic low tax uh, entities. So these two these two deviations uh, to to make the model rules or these two deviations, the Commission hopes that the 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 directive will be in line with the fundamental freedoms however there is a third important uh, deviation and that is that uh, the directive will provide that top-up tax uh, can be collected at the level of the 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 the, the country where the low the eu member state where the low tax entities are situated and to make this clear uh, with an example eh, imagine you have a, a belgian a belgian headquartered multinational with a subsidiary in Ireland, low tax in Ireland. Well, normally under the, the general mechanism of the, of the globe model rules and the income inclusion rule, it will be Belgium that can collect the top of tax with respect to the low tax profits in Ireland. Well, now under the directive, the option is provided that uh, Ireland can collect the top of tax locally so that uh, it will not be Belgium that collect the topic tax, but Ireland, and this to protect the sovereignty of EU member states. So I would say some, uh, by and large, in line with the OECD model rules, but some important deviations. Okay, thank, thanks, Jean-Philippe. Um, I would say for the audience, if you want to know more about eh, the OECD proposal, eh, we have a separate podcast on that, just as a, as a recap uh, for, for the listeners that want more details on what the OECD proposed. Um, but okay, Jean-Philippe, uh, uh, quite some important differences. So, um, yeah, Isabel, European Union as first mover again in, in an important uh, tax policy area. Um, how, from your perspective, how do you see the interaction uh, between this proposal and the European Union and the rest of the world? Um, can, can you enlighten us on that one? Yeah, thanks, uh, Peter. And uh, hi, everybody. Glad to be here in the podcast. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, very ambitious uh, implementation plan. Eh? The planned introduction is 1st of January 2023, uh, knowing that we have here a draft uh, directive that needs to be translated uh, first of all, in domestic legislation. So um, uh, it's perfectly plausible. We understand the political adagium uh, behind it, leveling the playing field, building trust in the international tax architecture. But um, when it boils down to um, applying uh, the technicalities, well, uh, I guess uh, there will be a few countries that will... Um, uh, we'll be surprised maybe about the effect of some of the rules. Huh? Think about uh, how to avoid double taxation. It's a, it's, it's a concern that, that, that might pop up. Uh, interesting is that um, the Commission's proposal contains a provision to determine the equivalence of laws of some non-EU countries. This is where we have to um, think in the first instance about the United States and the uh, so-called guilty uh, global uh, intangible low tax income system, so their minimum taxation, and um, how that ties to the uh, income inclusion rule, 
and so what um, uh, conditions a jurisdiction needs to fulfill before the EU uh, grants the equivalent. So it's a very interesting one, also uh, politically uh, interesting to see what's going to happen next year with the midterms. Um, um, interesting. And then there are a number of countries that are relatively silent eh, because it's uh, it's almost binary. Eh? You hear people talking about the EU, about the United States, but what about very important economic blocks of emerging countries that are relatively silent? But uh, it will be very interesting uh, to see as things are progressing, as uh, somewhat um, relatively vague concepts under the directive need to be translated, uh, what will be uh, actually the proof of the pudding uh, in terms of acceptance, uh, Peter? That's uh, what I see as a very interesting development to keep an eye on. Okay, yeah, thanks, Isabel. So, yeah, Europe moving ahead clearly, or at least uh, with a big intention to move ahead. And, and um, yeah, another area uh, linking a bit to this, I think where Europe is setting an important step forward is also in the uh, proposal to unshell uh, companies, so the ATAT3. Um, based on what I read today, that is really a, a far-going proposal. Uh, um, is this Jean-Philippe um, that the European Union is publishing here and against the, the background of first mover? Uh, this can count as well, I guess. Indeed, Peter, this is uh, yet another very important uh, evolution. Eh? And with this uh, ATA 3 or Directive on, on Shell Entities, um, the Commission wished to provide new, uh, econo a new economic integrate, a new economic substance, uh, substance test. Eh? And the idea is that this directive has a very broad scope uh, covering uh, all all undertakings resident EU, in the EU. So not only legal entities, but as well partnerships and uh, which all uh, entity forms that uh, that exist. Um, there are different uh, tests in this uh, in the directive. And first of all, the first test will be uh, identifying when there is uh, an entity has a lack of su substance and when there is a, a potential risk. And for this uh, three, uh, cumulative uh, criteria have to be fulfilled. And first, uh, more than 75% of the revenues accruing to the undertaking in the preceding two years must be relevant income. Uh, relevant income is, for example, interest income, royalty income, dividend income, so the royalty passive in uh, normal uh, passive income flows, but also crypto assets, uh, income from immovable property, and so on. Second, uh, the undertaking must be engaged in cross-border activities. And third, in the preceding two years, the undertaking outsourced the administration of day-to-day -day operations and the decision-making uh, on, decision on significant functions. And if these three criteria are met, uh, the undertaking is regarded as a risk entity and uh, there are reporting requirements. What do these uh, reporting requirements mean? Well, uh, the company that uh, poses a risk must declare in its annual tax return, so on an annual, annual basis, whether it meets certain uh, sub minimum substance indicators. Um, there again, there are several substance indicators. For example, whether the undertaking has own premises in the member state or uh, premises at its exclusive use. Next, uh, whether the undertaking has at least one own uh, one own bank account and must be an active bank account in the European Union. 
And third, uh, as well, whether the undertaking has at least one directive, one director resident close to the undertaking and, uh, to, and dedicated to its activities. So there are se several uh, substance, uh, minimum substance tests. And uh, importantly is that when you say, okay, we will fill, fulfill this minimum substance, all these tests, they have to be documented. Eh? So it's not just saying fulfilled, but as well, it must be proven. If all minimum substance requirements are met, there is the presumption that it's not a shell entity. So uh, there it uh, stops then normally. However, if uh, one of these minimum substance requirements is not fulfilled, there is a presumption that it is uh, a shell, uh, that the entity is a shell entity. However, uh, the taxpayer can rebut this provi provision by either pro pro uh, proving that there is substance, and again, there must be a sub substantive proof uh, of this, or can as well demonstrate that there is no tax benefit, meaning that if the, 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 the entity would not be interposed, the tax burden uh, would not be uh, would not be lower. Uh, so that's so that's uh, apologies would not be higher. So that's uh, important one that is burden of proof. Uh, and as well, if uh, an important measure is there, administrative uh, measure that if um, if you can prove this, then it can be agreed that this can be uh, the, the this approval is valid for five years up to five years. So that to reduce the administrative compliance burden. So the, the European Union is really proposing a, an, an overview of the requirements that should be met as a company not to be regarded as a shell company. Um, and, and important, I think, uh, to mention, Philip, is that this is a change to the Directive on Administrative Cooperation. Eh? So, so this information will also be shared uh, within the European Union uh, as part of that uh, initiative. So, okay, uh, and what happens if uh, you do not meet the, the requirements and, and you are considered a shell company? Uh, is the Directive also proposing uh, an impact for that? Yes, yes, there are, there are very important consequences. And the first one is that um, if you are regarded as uh, as a shell entity under the directive, well, then uh, treaty benefits uh, will be denied, but as well uh, access to the to the directive, uh, the, the parents EU directives, parent subsidiary directive, interest and royalty directive. So there's, of course, uh, important consequences there. Um, as you said, so this administration, eh, because of course EU member states should be able to verify uh, this and know when there is a shell entity. So information will be automatically exchanged between EU member states and that at a very swift uh, procedure will be implemented. And then um, there's an important aspect is as well, what if you're non-compliant with the procedure? Eh? So what if you do not report something? Well, there the member states are given a certain discretion to determine the sanctions, but the sanctions, uh, according to the draft directive, will include an, an administrative sanction of at least 5% of an undertaking's turnover. So if you have important financial flows streaming through this uh, entity, that is uh, through this, uh, what is regarded as a shell entity, the sanctions can be very material. So this is certainly an attention point. Hey, that are indeed very significant uh, penalties. Um, and and when when would this enter into effect, uh, Jean-Philippe? This directive. 
So according to the directive, the it is uh, member state EU member states should implement this by the end of uh, 2023, so that it enters into effect first of January uh, 2024 at least. Okay, okay. So um, yeah, clearly this is another uh, uh, first mover uh, step, I would say, uh, Isabel. Wouldn't you agree that that uh, this is also quite unique in in the world? How how do you look at this with with your experience? Uh, um, is is this is Europe doing the giving the right message here to business? Well, you um, phrase the question in a very intriguing way, Peter. Because uh, first mover for what? Um, what do we want to achieve here? And if we are talking about companies with uh, weak economic substance, well, I would uh, think that this is what the OECD uh, G20. Uh, BEPS project uh, wanted to um, uh, deal with. It is the um, uh, economic substance, uh, as we all know, uh, something that is not legally specified as a notion, but for which value creation is used as a proxy. So now all of a sudden I see lack of economic activity. I see as um, Jean-Philippe was referring to uh, this requirement of this director, but um, they're not referring to the, the proxy of value creation that was um, extensively um, elaborated on under the, the BEPS project. So uh, it's draconic. Uh, that's the least uh, that, that one could say. Yeah? Uh, it goes very, very far. And it gives the impression that if um, uh, someone uh, incorporates a legal vehicle or sets up a joint venture, it can be whatever, um, you have to look at it through the lens of potential anti-avoidance. And this is where, where one could struggle with because one could have so many reasons to set up a, a legal arrangement a company a joint venture or whatever and uh, this is exactly also what we um, as pwc have submitted uh, under the uh, public consultation we said well you have a number of legal um, vehicles and uh, insofar that a legal vehicle um, generates tax consequences one has to see whether these tax consequences would potentially violate um, tax policy objectives and anti-avoidance could be such a uh, violation and then you probably uh, have a rationale for these sorts of measures but this is not how i read this this is simply um um, well, sending a bazooka uh, from the start. So very draconic uh, and yes, uh, first mover, but uh, well, I'm not overly proud of it as a, as a European. Uh, but one sees definitely um, the impact of um, the, the political impact eh, on, again, uh, stressing how important it is, the fairness uh, concept and, and you know, uh, all these um, notions around that. But what I would say, Peter, um, as companies, what, uh, what could we do? Well, the call for action is um, think about uh, your transfer pricing compliance. Eh? Think about your master file. Be very specific about your economic substance. Uh, to make sure that uh, indeed uh, you um, you can counter uh, a number of the um, deemed um, lack of uh, economic activity uh, allegations, I would say. Well, thanks for that, Isabel. And um, 
I think that that's based on what I hear and and what I read today that that indeed the the conclusion is that that these proposals will impact uh, or have relevance for I think all businesses. We we said that in the previous podcast on pillar two as well. Eh? Even even businesses who are active only in territories way above the fifteen percent uh, tax rate will be impacted because they will need to prove uh, how the tax is calculated. They will need to prove exactly how much tax they pay in an auditable, verifiable way. And I think here, uh, based on what I hear uh, from you and Jean-Philippe, it's, it's the same story. Companies will need to prove themselves, reversal burden of proof, prove that they have the people necessary to do certain activities, that their transfer pricing is aligned with with, with that and so on. So I think uh, impact is much broader than um, uh, businesses that would have uh, shell companies in the structure. Um, and also, so Peter, um, mm -hmm. um, informing your stakeholders eh, in the organization, the C-suite, the board, uh, because this brings another perspective on the way you deal with your tax affairs. Um, we have ATAT1, I think in most organizations this is known. We have the multilateral instrument, we have the beneficial owner test, we have principal purpose test. And now there comes as a sort of an overlay, something very draconian and, and, and you need to make your board understand uh, that this does not necessarily mean that uh, you're engaging in um, in anti-avoidance uh, in in anti-avoidance in a, in, a, in a fairly aggressive way, I would say. Mm -hmm. And and the pace of change is enormously fast. Um, so Jean Philippe, you follow this very closely. All these developments is is there going to be more in twenty two? Is this just the start of a number of additional developments in Europe, or or uh, how do you look at that? Um, well, I think as well in 2022, we can expect still uh, as well, yet again, um, several new legislative proposals. Uh, we have DAC 8 coming up with um, on crypto exchange, on exchange of information on cryptocurrencies, uh, harmonizing penalties. We have as well still publication of effective tax rates based on Pillar 2 calculations a draft directive that we are expecting as well debra had a debt equity bias reduction allowance we have the fit for 55 package where we expect uh, uh, progression there so as well 2022 uh, the european agenda will be packed yeah yeah okay that's uh promising for the new year i would say um unfortunately you know this podcast is is a rather short one so we, we've come to the end of the podcast but i have one last question for both of you um and and that is a very short one eh? if you could give um a, a last message uh, perhaps of hope for the audience that is listening to this podcast what would be your key message your recommendation uh for for the listeners of the podcast um isabel jean flip don't know who wants to go first I'm happy to go first, uh, Peter. Um, well, the hope, well, if you do the modeling and there is now already uh, some more information than where we were just with the launch uh, of the work of the Inclusive Framework back in October, uh, the OECD delivered this week. Uh, we have now also the, the commission who delivered. There is now um, uh, more uh, opportunity to think about the data points you need uh, to start with the modeling rather sooner than later. And that I think would give you some, some comfort and at least some mental rest. Indeed, and if I can, uh, if I can add to that, besides modeling, I think um, as well, what is important is certainly to the monitoring 
Yeah, so they're monitoring all these evolutions and as well, which impact the strategic impact of all these evolutions and how to adapt your business structure uh, to all these evolutions. Okay, thanks a lot for sharing that. And and as I said, we reached the end of the podcast. So I would really like to thank you uh, for immediately joining me uh, for this podcast, for having read the documents and give these these, these first reflections uh, to the listeners. I highly appreciate it. And also for the listeners, thank you for tuning in. Um, we know a lot of developments are happening. We try to stay on top of them and, and stay tuned, I would say, uh, with the podcast series. And uh, we'll make sure that you get the latest uh, insights. Thank you.